0: Beginning today, we will be studying in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 for the next seven Sundays about seven churches that existed in the first century in what we know today as Turkey. Back then it was known as a place called Asia Minor. So if you'll open your Bibles today to Revelation chapter number 2 and we're going to begin that study. Now, it's interesting, last week I was reading some data that has just come out about a study that was done on the American church... Between 2013 and 2019, it was done of mainline Protestant churches, evangelical Protestant churches, African American churches, all different kinds of churches. And in the weeks ahead, we'll be studying some. We'll be sharing some of the data and some of the information that that study has revealed. The short of it is, is that the American church today whether you're Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Episcopalian, or non-denominational, the sad truth is the trend before the pandemic came was a downward trend. Church attendance across the nation is down. Numbers of people being saved, that's down. And so I think it's a timely study that we'll be looking at these churches and trying to apply what, we, what happened 2,000 years ago with our church here in Pasadena even today. Now, I want to say at the beginning of this, I don't feel like that I'm really the one to stand up here and say hey, here's the answer for the American church. I don't really feel like I have the answer. I have some opinions. Some of them might be right. Some of them might be wrong. But I'm kind of like a guy. I remember hearing a story about a, a well-known geologist. And he had written a lot of books and was very well-known and very very famous, actually. And yet the man was shy. He was kind of a recluse. And he'd rather stay in his little house and write books. He didn't like to be out before the people. And yet it came a time in his life when the public almost demanded that he give speeches and they just begged him. They said, please come to our university and share your wisdom about geology with us. And so reluctantly, the geologist agreed that he would set aside about 12 to 14 weeks over the course of a summer, and he would just travel. And each night during the week, he would speak at a different college or different university. Well, since he would be traveling a lot, he hired a driver so that the, other, the driver could do that part of the thing, and he could just focus on his speech. Well, About the middle of July, after he'd given about 25 or 30 speeches, one night the driver was driving him to the next place, and the the scholar said to the driver, I am sick and tired of hearing myself talk. I've, I've given the same speech for the last 30 nights. I'm tired of hearing myself speak. The driver said, well, I'll tell you something. I've heard your speech so many times that I think I could give the speech for you. And so the scholar said, Pull over in the next gas station. I have an idea. So the driver pulled over, and the scholar said, What I want us to do is change clothes. You put on my suit and tie and you'll dress like the scholar and I'll put on what you're wearing and your driving cap and and I'll be the driver. And when we get to the university, nobody knows what I look like anyway. And so you get up there and when they introduce me, you just go up there and play like you're me and you give the speech. And so that's what they did. They got in the room. It was packed that night. Everybody come to hear this uh, scholar. And the master of ceremonies introduced him and the driver incognito came up there and gave the speech. And for 45 minutes, he didn't miss a beat. I mean, he got everything right. And the scholar was standing over there to the side. He was so proud of his driver for learning all he had learned that summer. And when the man finished his speech, standing ovation, they were just amazed at this man's speech. And, and so the master of ceremonies, he, he came up there and he said, please, everybody be seated. He said, I'll be honest with you. I've never heard a speech that good in all my life. He said, I want to do something tonight that I've never done before. I want to open up the floor for questions. And so the man was thinking, oh, my questions, my my cover's about to be blown. He said, does anybody have a question? The master of ceremony said that. A man on the front row stood up and said, yes, sir, I have a question, something I've wondered for a a very long time. He said, how do you justify your method of radiocarbon-14 dating in light of the fact of the universal flood that abruptly and suddenly changed all geological specimens on the planet since the anti-diluvian age and forward. And in addition to that, I've always wondered, how does that impact the laws of thermodynamics? Well, the man was standing there, sweat pouring down his face. His heart was beating. His mind was racing. He's thinking, what am I to say? And all of a sudden, he had a moment of inspiration. And he said, sir, your question is so simple, I'm going to let my driver answer that question for you. (laughs) And he thought like that. Now, as we think about the church, what's wrong with the church? What's right with the church? What can the church do to reach more people? This is not a simple topic. And these next seven weeks are not going to be simple sermons where we say, hey, if we'll do this, we'll all be better off. But as we study the Word of God, even though it's not simple, and even though it's not necessarily easy, it's the right thing to do, and we're going to learn some things about the church that we can easily apply to our own lives here. Now, before I get into this, I want to make four statements about the church, and I can make them quickly. Remember this. Number one, Jesus Christ is the one who built the church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Notice he didn't say, I will build your church. Neither did he say, you will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And so Jesus is the architect and the builder of the church. Statement number two while Jesus built the church, the church was actually born on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit came down, that was the birthday of the church. Another statement I would make about the church, I said this last week, but I want us to remember this as we begin our study the church is not the buildings. The church is the people. You are the church and I am the church. Remember the Greek word I mentioned last last week, ekklesia? We'll put it on the screens this morning. E-K-K-L-E-I-S-A. That is the Greek word from which we get our English word, church. And it literally means the called out ones. In other words, God has called us out of darkness. He has called us out of the world to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to follow him all the days of our lives. And so the church is the people. If we were having services today on the baseball field, the the church would be on the baseball field. The church would not be in these buildings. And then the other thing I would say by way of of opening up today about about the church, and that is the church has been around for 2,000 years, and the church of Jesus Christ will be here until we are raptured up and taken to heaven. While it is sad, sadly true, that in America, church attendance... People's commitment to the church, it's on the decline, and as you study the history of the church, there's been persecution, there have been times of decline, there have been times of growth, but the church will be here until Jesus comes back because he said that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Now, as we come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, what we have here are seven different churches that actually existed in the first century in, again, modern-day Turkey, known as Asia Minor then, the smaller part of Asia. And the first of these churches is the church at Ephesus. Of all seven churches, the church at Ephesus was the most prominent church of all. We have good reason to believe from the New Testament that the apostle Paul founded this church. Timothy, his associate. Uh, pastored the church after Paul had pastored the church. And then a man named Tychicus, who was another one of Paul's companions, had also pastored that church. And if that's not good enough, the apostle John had himself pastored the church at Ephesus. In fact, it was while John was in Ephesus pastoring this church that he was arrested For his faith and witness of Jesus Christ, he was taken to an island known as Patmos off the Aegean Sea, and he spent years there, and that's where he wrote the book of the Revelation from his imprisonment on that island. The first church that he wrote to was the church at Ephesus. Now, as I think about the church at Ephesus, I would say it this way. It was a great church facing great challenges. It was a great church, first of all, because of its history, the men who had pastored that church. It was a great church also because for over 40 years, that church had been a witness for Jesus Christ. But it was a great church facing great challenges. The people in Ephesus, the Christians there, faced many of the same challenges that we face today. And namely, it is this, they were living in a secular, godless society. We think we're the first generation, the first group of Christians to try to reach people who are living in a secular society who doesn't believe the Bible and who rejects Jesus Christ. But we're not. In Ephesus, while they were known for many things, the thing they were most known for was a huge temple that they had built for the Roman mythological god, Diana. It was a huge temple. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana. And so the people in Ephesus, the majority of them, would go to this temple. She was the god of the hunt, and they would worship her, and they would pray that God would provide food for them, and, and here they are worshiping. And so here you have Paul, and then Timothy, and Tychicus, and the Apostle John, and, and these other Christians there at the church in Ephesus, and, and they're preaching a different message. They're saying, wait a second. We don't believe that Diana is even real. We don't believe a a myth. It's it's mythology. It's Roman mythology. We don't believe in, in her. We believe in the God of heaven and earth. We believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And we believe that it's only through repentance of sin and faith in Christ that we can go to heaven and be with God when we die. That's what those guys were preaching. And yet they were in the minority because most of the people were working and worshiping at that temple of Diana. And so I say of Ephesus what I say of the church in Pasadena. And what I say of many churches in America, listen, we are a great church with a great history. We've been around for over 120 years. Our church has had five different locations during those 120 years. You study the men who have pastored these churches, the leaders who have gone before us, godly men, godly people who preached the Bible and lifted up Jesus Christ. So, yes, in that sense, we can say from a historical perspective, we're a great church. We're three times older than the church at Ephesus was. They've been around 40 years. We've been around 120 years, and yet we, like they, face great challenges. We are living in what some have called a post-Christian culture. That can be reversed, by the way, but currently there is truth in that. We're living in a secular world. We're living in a day where people are, are less receptive to the to the gospel. They're more antagonistic about the Bible, and they're they're saying that we need to update the Bible and, and get it in the in the modern world. And what we're saying is we need to take the modern world back to the day of the Bible and put ourselves under the authority of what God has given us in his written word. Now, As we study and read about this church in Ephesus in chapter number two, there are four statements that I want to build my message around today. And so, if you're a note taker, this will be right down your alley because these are the truths that I get as I have read and studied this passage and thought about it. This is what jumps off the page to me. Statement number one here's what Jesus is saying to this church. And by the way, before I get into this, if you have a Bible, that puts the words of Christ in red letters, you will notice that all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 are in red letters. Because Jesus is the one speaking to these churches. John's writing it down. But Jesus is the one speaking. And here's what first, the first thing Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is, I am with you. The first thing Jesus says to the church in Pasadena today is this, I am with you. You're not alone in this secular world that you're living in. I'm with you. Verse number 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, let me comment on that. We read the angel. We wonder, was there an angel on staff at that church? Was there an angel who was an usher or greeter at that church? No. The Greek word here is translated messenger. Sometimes it can be an angel. Sometimes, though, it refers to the pastor who was leading that congregation. That man was the messenger of God. And that's what it's talking about here. That could just as easily read to the angel or to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand... WHO WALKS IN THE MIDST Of the seven golden lampstands. Now it's been a while since, in our study of Revelation, we read about the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. What is that? Look back at the end of chapter one and verse twenty. Jesus explains that he's already explained it. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, or the messengers, or the pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying to the pastors of these churches, I have you in my hand. Now, you listen to that today and you think, well, good for the pastor (laughs) because Jesus has a pastor in his hand. Well, I'm not the pastor. Well, I'll say the same thing. I'm not the pastor. I'm the assistant pastor. My father's the pastor. I read that and say, well, good for my dad because he's in Jesus' hand. But do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, all of us who have been saved have been placed in his hand. And then if that's not enough, God the Father has placed his hand over Christ's hand. And so we're doubly secure and doubly blessed. We are in the hands of Jesus, and we are in the hands of God the Father. Now, a pastor who's leading a church has a special... A protection, and a special anointing to do what God has called him to do. But he's not the only one who's in God's hands. All of us who are saved are in God's hands. And these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And Jesus said, I'm walking in the midst of the churches. One of the things I I love about God and I love about the church and I love about preaching and coming together in worship is that while we're singing these songs of praise to God, while we're studying God's word together, even though we cannot see him, Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, is walking and moving up and down these aisles, in and out these pews, taking what is being taught from the Word of God and applying it and making it real to our lives. And so the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is with us and we are not alone. Now the second thing, as I think about this passage, the second thing Jesus is saying to these churches, not only am I with you, But Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying to us today, I know what you have done for me. Sometimes we feel like we try to do something for God, and nobody even knows it. I saw some of you stand up. You had been the children's teacher or the preschool teacher or the junior high, high school teacher for these graduates today. And and you stood and you may feel like, you know, I, I teach fourth grade every Sunday morning, but I don't know that it really matters. I don't know if anybody really knows what I'm doing. Between services, I heard a man say, you know what? I remember one time I went and visited somebody in a prison a long way from here. And he said, I just sometime wonder Did anything come of that, or did anybody even remember that? And I thought of this passage, I thought, yes, God remembers. Look in verse number two. Notice what Jesus said to these Christians. He said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars." And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, look in verse 6. He said, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were a group of people who lived in the first century. They claimed to be Christians, but here was their message Since we live in the age of grace, since grace covers everything, it doesn't really matter what we do because God will forgive us anyway. And so they just taught behavior didn't matter. You're covered by God's grace. And they perverted the grace of God. And Jesus didn't agree with that. That's certainly not right. And the, cre- the Christians in Ephesus had rejected that teaching. But as I, as I read those verses, verses 2, 3, and 6... And I started thinking about all the things that Jesus said he knew about these Christians in Ephesus. I came up with several categories, and I want to just, just jot, just, you might want to jot this down and listen to this. Here's what Jesus was saying he knew about these Christians He was saying, I know that you're hard workers, I know that you persevere when you're going through a hard time, I know that you do that, I know that you have taken a strong stance against sin. And we should all be against sin in our own lives and in in a society. But there's some people who think that here's what it means to be a Christian today, just run around and denounce sin. Well, you know, before you denounce somebody else's sin, we better judge our own hearts and make sure. but, But these people were against sin. Jesus was glad that was good. We should all be against sin. And then Jesus said, I notice that you're spiritually discerning. You hear People saying things that aren't true and you have the gift of discernment. Jesus said this about him. I also know that you want God to get the glory. You're doing all these things for my name's sake. You're not trying to make a name for yourself. You're doing it for me. And then Jesus said, I noticed that you're strong. You don't grow weary. You don't give up when the going gets tough. People turn against you. You keep moving forward. So Jesus said these things about these Ephesian Christians and yet after, I mean, think about this. If, if Jesus appeared to you today, and Jesus said to you, "I've been watching you live your life for the last few years. I've everything you've done at church and in the community and with your family, I've been paying attention. And I have noticed that you're a hard worker. You're down at the church. you, you take your job seriously. If it's teaching Sunday school or being an usher or a greeter or whatever it might be, you take it seriously. I've noticed not only that, when, when things get tough, you don't give up, you don't quit, you keep moving forward. You, you're against sin. You've taken your stand, and that's a great thing. You have discernment. You want me to get the glory. You're not full of pride and ego. You want it to be about me, and, and you don't grow weary. You're strong. Listen, if, if I thought Jesus might say half of that to me, I would feel so good and think, man, Jesus is is saying these positive words of affirmation to me, and I, I I would feel like my life had been lived in the right way. But as we come to verse number four, Jesus makes the third statement to this church in Ephesus, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, even though you're doing all the right things, I have noticed that your heart for me has grown cold. Look at it. Verse number four. Nevertheless, some of your translations say, but, or yet. Mine says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Talking about a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, notice, he did not say, you have lost your first love. He didn't say, you've lost your salvation. You can't lose eternal life. Sometimes a person will say, well, I've committed some sin, adultery or murder or something really bad, and, and I think that, that now I'm, I'm no longer saved. I think I need to get saved again. I've lost my salvation. Friend, you can't lose eternal life. Think about it. If, if salvation is eternal life, and that's what it is, how long does eternal life last? It lasts eternally. So if you could lose it, it wasn't eternal. It was temporary. Jesus didn't say, you've lost your first love. What did he say? He said, you have left your first love. Even though you're doing all the right things, here's what he was saying, your heart's not in it. As I was preparing this, I came across a quote from Greek scholar, New Testament scholar, Warren Wiersbe, two statements that just gripped my heart. Here's what he said. He said, labor is no substitute for love. And then he said, purity is no substitute for passion. Now, should we labor and work for God? Yes, but it's no substitute for love. Should we pursue purity in our lives? Yes, we should, but purity is no substitute for passion. And what Jesus was saying to this church at Ephesus, and what Jesus is saying to many today is, you're laboring, you're working hard for me, you're pure, I don't have anything against you, but here's the problem I have with you. Here's the observation that I have made. You have left your first love. You're not doing it out of a heart full of love for me. You're doing the right thing because you know it's right, but you're not doing it because you have a heart full of love for me. Which, before I even get on to the next statement that Jesus makes, let me ask you a question today. On this day, Sunday morning, May 23rd, 2021, would you say that your love for Jesus Christ is strong, it's passionate? Say it this way. would you say today, you know what, John, as of this moment, I am on fire for God. When the alarm clock went off today, and I thought, today is Sunday, we're going to church, I'm going to see my brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to sing songs to God, I'm going to give God a tithe, and maybe a little more than a tithe, and I'm going to study His Word. It's God's day, and I'm glad to go to church. Did you have that? Or when your clock went off this morning, you thought, man, if I stayed home today, would anybody notice I mean, I'm asking you, you, are you passionate for God, or has your fire grown cold? As I said, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be sharing some of the statistics from the study that has just come out. It's fascinating. It's fascinatingly sad, but it's nonetheless fascinating. One of the studies was unique to Southern Baptist churches. And here's what it said. It said, eight, and we shared this with the students on Saturday night. My dad mentioned this on Friday night at their, at their service here at the church, their dinner. 80% of high school students after, that have grown up in the church, that are coming to the church, 80% of them after they graduate high school, now listen to this, will never go to church again. Now, it doesn't mean they'll never go to the church they grew up at again. That's not what the study said. 80% after graduating, when they walk across the stage, they walk out the door, and they never come. That's 80% of never come back. Now, when you hear a statistic like that, at least when I hear a statistic like that, as a leader of a church, as a minister of a church, here's how my mind goes. I say, well, well, the church has got to do something about this. I mean, we can't have 80% of our graduates leaving the church in general and never going back. We've got to do something to stop this problem. And for a guy in my position, that's what I question I should be asking. What can we do? Why do you think we started this contemporary service? It is largely to try to get people like these students, like college-age students, and like people who prefer contemporary music. That's what you listen to on your radio. that's, That's what you grew up with here even in the church on your Wednesday night youth services. So we've started a service here, and we need to, from a church perspective, Whether it's with students, young adults, or anybody else, we need to always be asking, what can we as the church do to reach as many and keep as many of people as we possibly can? But friend, I have to be totally honest and say this today. I want to just say this as as straightforward as I know how to say it. When 80% of graduating seniors walk out the church and never come back to church, you can't blame all of that on the church. That would have been a fine place for an amen and I didn't get one back. Let me put that in reverse and then drive down that road again. When 80% of graduating seniors walk out the church and never go back to church again, you can't blame all of that on the church. Amen. Some of that is on the graduates. Some of that is on the it's on us. In other words, if I'm not going to church, If I'm 18 years old, here's how it would have been with me. Now, I went off to college, so I was down in Waco going to school. But, But, you know, talk about independence. My dad has always said to me, here's your independence from me. When you get off my payroll, that's when you're independent. Long as I'm still paying for a lot of that college, I expect you to get a job in school, and I got a job. And I expect you to do your part, and I try to do my part. He said, but you're not financing your whole college experience. And so since I'm still funding the bill, you're going to kind of play by my rules until you want to pay for all your bills. If my dad would have called me when I was a freshman at Baylor and said, how was church today on a Sunday afternoon? And I would have said, well, you know, dad, I I didn't go today, you know, be honest with you, this pastor, he's not as good as you are. I would have tried to do it that way to get myself out. You know, you were good, dad, man, you, you could put it out there, but this guy, he's kind of dry. He's kind of bored. The music, I didn't really like it. Seemed like a lot of snobs there, there at the church. So I just, I just chose not to go. Oh, you chose not to go, huh? Well, let me tell you what. Next Sunday, you better choose to go. Either find another church or get dealing with that one. But as long as I'm paying for it, you're going to church. And he sure would have said that if I was living in his house. Can you imagine if I'd have gone to a junior college or East Texas State University in the first year or two of my college, and it's Sunday morning, and he and my mom are getting ready to go to church, and, and they bang on my door. John, you up? No, no, I'm not going to church today, Dad. I'm not going. I'm not going to stay down a little late last night. And, you know, I just, I just get more out of it, you know, when I'm alone with God, having my quiet time. He's like, well, you fixing to be alone with God because you ain't going to be in this house living like th-. No, he would have said, hey, man well, you know, Dad, it's not the same now. When I was in high school, I had all my buddies, and now some of them moved away, and now I go to church, and it's not the same. I'm not in the youth group anymore. He'd say, listen, you're not going to church because you're in the youth group. You're going to church because you're a child of God, and the Bible says don't forsake the assembly of the saints. Get yourself up and drive down to the church. That's how that would have played out for me. That's how that would have played out for me. And so 80%, yes, the church should always say, what can we do? to make it where people want to come to church. We have to always ask that. But I'm saying if a person is not going to church, they can't just sit home watching the ball game and saying, well, it's all on the church. No, it's all on them. Some of it's on them. And they have to take responsibility for their actions. Now, Jesus said, on the next statement that Jesus made, here's what he said. First of all, he said, I know that you're you're doing the right things, but your heart has grown cold. You don't love me like you used to love me. But he says this, there's a way to get your fire back. Now, I'm glad Jesus didn't just stop telling them how they had left their first love. Jesus said, if your love for me has grown cold, there's a way for that passion to come back. There's a way for that fire to return. There's a way for Bible reading and prayer and and going to church to be exciting again. And in verse number five, Jesus gives us the steps that we need to take. Let me read the verse and then I'll comment on it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent. Three words out of that verse that applies to all of us during those times in life when our passion has waned and our love for God has grown cold. Word number one is remember. That's what Jesus said. Remember from whence you have fallen. Remember what? Remember how excited you were when you first got saved. You remember when you first got saved? Or for a guy like me, John, remember what it was like. That night when you came to the full assurance of your salvation and you didn't have to doubt or worry or wonder, you knew your sins were forgiven. You knew Jesus was living in your heart, and you knew that heaven was your home. Man, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I couldn't get enough of praying. I couldn't get enough of telling my buddies, whether I was at the gym or whether I was wherever, that that Jesus Christ had given me a peace that I never thought I would have. Jesus said, remember that. Remember what it was like. And he says, number two, repent. What do you mean, repent, Jesus? What is it that you have stopped doing that you used to be doing when you had that fire in your bones? Yesterday afternoon, we had a a funeral here at the church, and I went home, and I had a late lunch, turned the TV on, flipping channels. Came to one of the Christian channels. Billy Graham was preaching. Sermon probably preached 40, 50 years ago. I don't know what country he was in. It was some African country. And he gave the invitation. It was pouring down raining. It was raining. I've never seen it rain so hard. He was getting soaked. And the, he was up there in a raincoat preaching. And I thought, what a man of God to do this in the rain. And he gave the invitation and he said, Listen, some of you need to get saved and it's raining and the water's ankle deep and you need to walk down this aisle and you need to get saved. He said, I received a letter from somebody the other day who had been saved at one of our crusades years ago in London when it was raining like this, and they said to me, Dr. Graham, I'm so glad that it was raining that night I came to the crusade because when you gave the appeal and I thought about going forward in ankle-deep water, he said there was something about the challenge of doing that that made me even take Jesus more seriously, and he said somehow the rain helped me get saved. Billy Graham gave that invitation and hundreds of people, maybe thousands, came forward and they got saved. And I never got to go to a Billy Graham crusade. I don't know if you did. I never did. I've seen a ton of them on television. But until yesterday, I never had seen what Dr. Graham says to the people after they get saved. You know, normally at that point, They shifted off that and they say, hey, if you're home or in a bar in a hotel and you want to get saved, pray this prayer, call this number, and you really don't know what Dr. Graham was saying to the new converts. But yesterday at the crusade in Africa, they kept it on. I thought, man, I'm going to see something. I I thought I knew everything about Billy Graham. I haven't seen this. He said to the people, he said, you've just been saved. You've just made the greatest decision of your life. He said, the question is now what? Now what are you supposed to do? And he said, I'm going to mention four things, and if you'll do these four things, you will grow in your faith, and you'll get closer to God, and your life will count for Jesus Christ. He said, number one, read your Bible every day. Read your Bible every day. Number two, pray every day. Number three, witness. Tell other people about Jesus and he said, you know, sometimes you wonder, how am I supposed to be a witness? How am I supposed to share my faith? He said, I'll tell you the best thing you can do to be a good witness for Jesus Christ. He said, learn how to smile. He said, because if you'll smile, people will see that you're happy, and they'll want what you have. And in time, you'll have an opportunity to tell them how Jesus gave you joy and how he changed your life. Learn how to smile. That's how you begin being a good witness. And then he said, go to church every Sunday. Same thing my dad just said to these graduates. Some are going to Waco, some college station, some Austin, some other city, some staying here. What is the word? Go to church every Sunday. You don't go. I think some people come to church and they say, well, you know, when it's all over with, if I got anything out of it, then maybe I'll go back next week, and if I didn't, then maybe I won't. You don't go to church because of what you get out of it, although if you come and pay attention, you will always get something out of it. You go to church because it is the right thing to do. It's not so, we're such a consumer culture. Even a church is, what can I get out of it? Friend, We are here to worship God. It is not what can I get out of it. It is what do I bring to it. And I'm telling you this, every day if you'll read your Bible, every day if you'll pray, every day if you'll witness, however, that doesn't mean you're leading somebody to get saved every day. It'd be great if it did. It doesn't mean that. And every day or every week, if you'll go to church, I'm going to tell you this, it will be hard for your fire for God to go out in an environment like that. It will. And so Jesus said, repent. And then he says, do the first works. That is, return. Do those things that I just mentioned. And then the fourth thing Jesus said, we get this down in verse number seven. He says, refocus your attention off of earth and on to heaven. Here's the problem with many of us. We're spending too much time thinking about earthly things when we ought to be thinking about heavenly things. One of the things, and I don't talk about this very often, but I went through kidney cancer in 2015, and thank God he healed me of that. But I'll say this, and maybe one day I'll do a whole sermon on how through that experience, God changed my whole perspective of life. And here's what God showed me through that experience. Life as you know it can end just like that. I don't think nearly as much about where I'm going to be in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or how much money I have or will I retire or will I buy a second house or will I do this or will I travel there or will I do this. You know what I know? I know that I could be in heaven. I could be out into eternity before this day is over with. change my perspective. And yet so many of us, how, how old does this state? So many of us are so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. Now look in verse number uh, seven. Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus is saying, he's talking about heaven. He's saying, your heart's grown cold. One of the reasons it's grown cold is you're too earthly minded. You're thinking too much about your bank account and your job and your boat and your car and your vacation and your trip and your sports and, 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 and your friends. And you're thinking too much on earth. Put your mind on heaven. And Jesus said, if you'll set your mind on heaven, then your heart for me will grow cold. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when you tithe, you're giving your part of your treasure to God. Your heart's in heaven because your mind's in heaven. Your treasure is in heaven. Now, I'm out of time. My time is, out, is, is gone. In fact, I'm about three minutes over. And uh, if you forgive me, say, we forgive you. We forgive you. I'm, but I'm still stopping. I'm stopping the sermon because I don't know if your forgiveness was genuine. I couldn't tell. <laughs> I don't think you meant that. I don't think you meant that. But I want to make two statements <laughs> And I wrote this out last night when I rewrote this sermon. I'm going to make them and end the sermon and see who wants to get saved. How would that be? That would be a good way to wrap this day up. Number one, loving God is more important than serving God. I wish I could talk about that for a while, but my time is up. Number two, loving God is the prerequisite for serving God. Remember after Simon Peter sinned? I mean, he talk, you talk about a biggie. He denied that he knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. I don't know the man. Peter, what are you saying? He thought, oh, man, what have I done? He felt horribly about it. He wept. He quit the ministry, and he went back into the fishing business. And several weeks after the resurrection, Jesus left Jerusalem, went to the north in Galilee by this little uh, Lake Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, where Peter was fishing. Jesus said, I can't go back to heaven until I first restore Peter to the ministry. He said, Peter, I want to ask you a question. He asked the same question three times. He said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I reinstitute you into the ministry. You're not uncalled. You're not disqualified. You messed up. But my grace is sufficient and my blood can wash it away. And as long as I know and as long as you know that you love me with all your heart out of the overflow of that love, you can spend the rest of your life serving me. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, and I'm glad he was because it applies to all of us. He was saying, loving God is more important than living a perfect life. And I'm glad about that because is anybody here who, 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 who has lived a perfect life? No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we receive God's forgiveness and love him with all of our hearts, he can do some fantastic things through our lives. Amen.